Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Hopefully, you're subscribed to my podcast and sharing with friends. And if you've not read Stronghold yet, this episode may convince you to go out and get the book today. Guido Rar may quite possibly be one of the most interesting people I've ever had the chance to talk to in my life. This episode is brought to you by Hatch Outdoors. In this episode, you're going to learn how to catch a lizard with your bare hands. We'll learn Guido's thoughts on the amazing Clouser Minnow, what it's like swimming with salmon and steelhead, steelhead migrations, whether or not Russian helicopters are safe, salmon conservation, ocean blobs, and then we're going to go over Guido's family Thanksgiving, which sounds absolutely amazing. I thought hosting here this year is going to be awesome. I don't know. Having a Thanksgiving on the Deschutes River sounds pretty fantastic, too. I mentioned this is... Brought to you by Hatch Outdoors. Hatch was founded by John Torok, who purchased what he thought was a high-end reel for a trip to the Eastern Sierras. It failed miserably within hours of fishing on the first day. John reached out to a business friend who was the only person that he knew whose products were machined. That friend suggested that he call Danny Ashcraft. 
John went to talk to Danny, but Danny wasn't home. He was out fishing in Idaho. What were the odds of finding a machine shop owner in San Diego who was also an avid fisherman on the very first try? So when you want a product to work right, sometimes you have to build it yourself. And that is where Hatch Reels began. Hatch Outdoors premiered their first reel, the 5 Plus, in 2005. Hatch Reels are now industry standard, made in America, and family-owned and operated since 2003. And now we're going to hear from somebody that puts these reels to the test almost every day. Let's hear from Dirty Bill. Hi, this is Mike Dale, Dirty Bill's Guide Service. I've been guiding up here on the Salmon River for 10 years. I've handled just about every make and model of fly reel that is imaginable. And for my personal rods and the client rods that I use, I have hatch reels on them. They're machined aluminum. The drag on them is amazing. You know, even when it's below freezing or it's raining, I've never had a problem with drag failure on these on these reels. Uh, they have many different sizes and colors to choose from, anywhere from brook trout to tarpon. They've got something for you. So check them out at your local fly shop or at a fly fishing event. Um, definitely worth taking the time if you're in the market for a new quality reel. All right. So Guido, I first learned about you through Langdon Cook's book. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I at first, I was amazed that you were fishing for salmon with clousers. I just find that odd. <laughs> well, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really fished those flies for salmonids before. Pretty much just warm water. Um, so we used to fish, uh, you know, comets, bosses, you know, typical classic uh, tidewater Chinook flies. And then a couple of years ago, started fishing clousers. And, uh, boy, they really work. <laughs> Chartreuse clousers. I oh, should have taken those up to New York with me recently. Um, but while we're getting started, uh, for those that aren't familiar with you, or haven't seen the book, is there a celebrity you most resemble? Oh, God. I, uh, not that I can think of. Uh, it may take some more time. Maybe see, Ger the writer Gerald Durrell. <laughs> I, I see a little bit of Bill Paxton. Uh, Got to remind me who Bill Paxton is again. Older brother from Weird Science. Oh, I probably should know who that is more. I can't. <laughs> I'll That's take your word reference. for it. Okay. And yeah. you're in Portland today? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking out the time. I just, this is part two. We just had your cousin Tucker on recently. So cool. this is finishes up. That was a fantastic inter uh, interview with her. She seems like a lot of fun. Good person to be hanging out with you've been able to do yeah tucker's terrific so before we get into fish how does one catch a lizard oh well it depends on what species of lizard the first rule of lizard catching is if you get them in the morning they're easier to catch because they move more slowly so you go in the morning while they're sunning and they're not quite as fast the second trick is you distract them with one hand while the other hand sneaks around up behind them and then makes a quick darting motion uh, and grabs them. And that is the art of catching lizards. Now, that, those are lizards that are diurnal lizards that are out in the sun. Uh, most liz other lizards, like alligator lizards, uh, skinks, some geckos, are not out in the open. And then you flip rocks over looking for them. 
and you flip a rock and you look and you flip another rock. You always put the rocks back or the logs back where you lifted them up. But when you see a lizard, especially a skink, you've got to move very quickly to grab it. And the key is you do not want to grab the tail because the tail will break off. And, it, you know, of course, the lizard, is, that's an adaptation it has to survive being, you know, attacked by predators. But uh, and it'll grow a new tail. But, you know, why unnecessarily, uh, you know, harass a poor little lizard and make its tail break off? So you generally want to catch it above the, the back legs so you don't have that problem. I've never been able to catch a lizard. <laughs> Try catching a big iguana, like a five-foot green iguana. We that heard about the fun. one that ate the pillow. <laughs> I forgot that's in the book. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was a monster. And we were, you know, that lizard, it was a cold, rainy day. And we were up in the trop uh, tropical forest area of northern Chiapas, Mexico. And my colleagues thought, great. They say, hay un garrobo. And we're going to eat it. Let's have it for lunch. And they started running out after it. And I knew exactly what was going on. And I ran ahead of them and grabbed it before they could get to it. And we just lifted it up. And I remember holding it up as high as I could. And its tail was still dragging on the ground. It was just wow. a gorgeous lizard. That's pretty cool. Have you seen yeah. the videos when it gets cold now in Florida, how they fall out of the trees? Oh, I haven't seen the videos, but I've heard that's happening. Yeah, that's interesting. So what keeps you going year after year to protect the Salmonids around the world? Well, it's a couple things. You know, it's quite clear. It, it's pretty close to home, you know, for any fisherman or fisherwoman. You know, that's where we go, you know, is to our rivers, where we, the rivers that we know and that we love. And that's where I find peace. And that's how I keep my batteries charged. I mean, I go fishing almost always by myself as a rule. And it really helps me uh, kind of clear my head and center myself again and reflect on things and then ready to march back into battle. So one is having a relationship with a river or two that you really can go to that's your home water. But the second is um, just determination. I mean, it's like, why would we let anybody take away something so sacred, our home water or any rivers? It's like, no, you know, that's not okay. And it's quite clear now that if we don't do things, all of us, we will lose these systems, right, one after the other as they march north in a pattern of decline. So what keeps me going is the thought of failing. And then I guess the third thing is um, you get mad. You're just like, uh, no, I'm going to fight. You know, I'm not going to. You lose in this business. And uh, you got to get used to that sometimes. But you got to dust yourself off and say, okay, but now I'm marching back in. And so I, I guess the fourth thing is there's a little bit of like, uh, no, I'm not about to roll over on this one. And um, and I guess not to make too long of an answer, but the, the final thing is the fight is virtuous. You know, the fight, you have to like the fight to save the rivers you love. And if you don't like that fight, then you're not going to last very long. So I see you as Clark Kent on the river fishing and then Superman when you're out fundraising and public speaking. <laughs> well, that's a, I'm sure more like as a fisherman, quite secretive and then kind of a, a timid. No, I'm not timid when I'm speaking, but uh, the, the life on the river, how you feel on the river is very different, obviously from the way you feel in front of people and in meetings and in a professional situation. Yeah, I don't get to fish as much as I'd like, but I think tomorrow, if it stays cloudy, I'm going to go chase some stripers. We've, nice. Uh, yeah. Stripers from the beach or from a boat? From foot, probably, down by Mount Vernon. That's where I'm Great. thinking. Great. Because I'm here in northern Virginia. 
some of your old stomping grounds. I don't know if you fished around here. We've really developed an urban fly fishing scene that's in the last decade. I think, you know, non-guided is fundamentally different than guided fishing. And I like fishing non-guided. And I don't care if I catch less fish, but if I can sleuth it out, figure it out, find the spot, discover it, you know, unravel it, unpack it, uh, tie the flies for it for that spot, that is totally awesome. I love that. Yeah, I've been developing my own flies for the fish here for over years, so it's it's fun trying to figure out everything. And pretty much the clouser is all you really need, though. Unfortunately, There's something the about the, the clouser. I, it's just a, it's a brilliant fly, and you'd never look in the case and think, oh, my God, that fly is the is the deadly weapon that it is. But the way it drops in the current uh, and the way it's, it's fishes and it's got that up and down motion and the hook riding up, I mean, I, you know, you get good hook sets with that fly. Yeah, and we go through a lot of them. And I, I do <laughs> a, a lot of blue and white is my, or blue and gray. We have these common shiners in the river that are about four inches long. And right now it's full of baby shad. So anything that looks like a little three-inch-long shad, the stripers are going to absolutely crush. Interesting. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah, it's that's fascinating. And you just stick with that same pattern. Do you put a lot of flash or a little flash? Just a little bit. And then I've got a damselfly dropper nymph that they seem to prefer more. I don't know if they see my damselfly as a minnow, but mm -hmm. we'll get more hookups on the damselfly. It's also my favorite shad fly. You have more shad mm. on a damsel than anything else. I don't question it. I just go with it. <laughs> that sounds great. I think that for sinking flies, if you can figure out a way to tie them hook riding up, you can fish more closely to the bottom with more confidence. You know, less, and it's, a, it's I think it's easier on the fish. You know, you're not going to catch a gill raker, you know, and cause a bleeding issue. And most hook gaps, you're not going to deal with any eye issues. You just get that maxillary hook, yep. hook up. While we're speaking of fish... Why is steelhead no longer considered a salmon? Well, okay, so there's the family Salmonidae, and it has four, at least four branches. One branch goes to the char, that's Salvolinus. One branch goes to the kind of true salmon or the European salmon. That genus is Salmo, and that's Atlantic salmon and all the different brown trout species. And then one branch goes to Taman which are the Asian giant trout, that's hucho. And then the remaining branch uh, goes to oncorhynchus, which means hooked, uh, hooked jaw hooked or hooked right. beak. Yeah. And oncorhynchus is where they put all the Pacific salmon and steelhead. And so genetically, there are closer affiliations between Pacific trout and the Pacific salmon, enough that they're lumped in the same genus. Now, steelhead, unlike true salmon, doesn't they don't necessarily die after spawning. And they can go to the ocean, spend another year or two, and come back and spawn again. So technically, they are a Pacific salmon, but really they, the, their life history is almost closer to an Atlantic salmon, or you're, you know, it's a trout, really. So I'm not sure I'm adding any clarity to the, to the situation, but that's the way the taxonomists have them divided up. Do you feel at all that steelhead take advantage of the salmon because they're not dying, but they're they're dropping off their eggs like a cuckoo would and then they're being raised <laughs> on all the nutrients of the salmon and then they leave but they don't they're like someone coming to a potluck and eating all the food but not bringing something 
You know, when you swim with with uh, the salmon, I've swam in a river with with I think four or five Pacific salmon species awesome. and, and steelhead, and it was really interesting to watch their personalities underwater. The pink salmon were these big schools of kind of panicky uh, fish that that all swam together, you know, like a big flock of birds. The Chinook were like a big pack of cattle, you know, just thundering along a little bit, almost kind of not dim-witted, but decisive and heavy and and not jumpy, but, you know, charging here to there if they got spooked and again in a group. But the steelhead were kind of like uh, wolves or, or foxes. You know, they were individuals. They'd kind of watch you. They didn't panic. They seemed a little bit wiser and more, uh, you know, in control of their space than the Pacific salmon. They looked a little bit sharper, if that makes any sense. So steelhead operate on levels of abundance way lower than most Pacific salmon. I mean, you don't get big, big groups of steelhead unless it's a spectacular run or they're all concentrated in low water somewhere. And then they spawn in the spring. And, you know, the fall, Chinook spawn in the fall, pink spawn in the fall and summer, Chum salmon spawn in the summer and fall. Coho salmon spawn in the fall. So the, the steelhead will spawn in the spring. And then those baby steelhead, which look like little rainbow, tiny little rainbow trouts, they're really cool looking, will be in the river for uh, two to three years. And guess what they're doing? Boy, if they see a baby salmon come out of the gravel or any eggs, they're going to eat them. And the steelhead will also lie behind the salmon when they're spawning and just feed on the eggs that come washing out of the reds. So they're very opportunistic. I love steelhead. We're going up to New York. We're not doing the West Coast steelhead. We've got the Great Lakes ones. Do you consider those real steelhead or do you call those lake run rainbows? They, you know, don't, they don't know they're going into the Great Lake. They think it's the Pacific. You know, it's very interesting. I mean, of course they're Okay, what is the difference between a lake-run trout and an ocean-going trout? I mean, there really isn't, is the salt. Now, I will say the one difference is how far they migrate. So, for example, okay, we don't really know where steelhead go in the Pacific Ocean when they migrate, but we're getting some tantalizing clues. Uh, there's a remarkable type of steelhead called the bee-run steelhead that spawns in the rivers of Idaho that travels up the Columbia River way up into the clear water and the salmon rivers, and there it spawns. And it's a spectacular fish because um, they, they, they're born up there, they live for two or three years as a trout. Then they make the big migration, they swim downstream past uh, four main stem dams, then more than four main stem dams, then they get out to the ocean and then they disappear. And nobody knows where they go. And then they come back as adults uh, and they, and well, let me just tell you where we think they go. A Japanese, a, a Russian research uh, vessel off the Kuril Islands, south of Kamchatka, was collecting juvenile fish for a study. And they caught a, a group of these silvery little fish that looked like rainbow trout. And they were tagged, and they were B-run steelhead from Idaho. Wow. They'd gone, that's 4,000 miles. Oh, and that's an incredible, and, and they were rearing off the coast of Japan and the Russian Far East. And that's just one little data point. I mean, who knows what they're doing out there? So those little fish would, would then migrate back across all those miles of open ocean back to the Columbia, arrive in the Columbia River in August when they do, when the river's 71 degrees, sometimes 72, that's warm, deal with all the sea lions and seals that are eating fish at the base of Bonneville Dam, deal with all the recreational fishermen, 
all the tribal and commercial fishing gill nets migrate past all those dams, end up in Idaho, and then until recently, Idaho allowed a sport fishery on these these amazing fish, and they're huge, you know, up to 25 pounds. I mean, big steelhead. And if you hook one, they're almost uncontrollable. You can imagine the strength they have to those migrations and the adaptations. So anyway, it's a long question, a long answer to your question, but these the, the ocean-going ones have these amazing migrations, but the lake-run ones are every bit as much of a steelhead as the ocean ones, and they, they're uh, beautiful and miraculous fish just the same. What's it like having your own private steelhead water. I wish I had that. Is it is your section of the road where the cabins are? Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Well, no, it's public water. Oh, so, so people, <laughs> can they float through or wade through then? They, they float through, and uh, <laughs> they float through, and it's a bummer because not everybody used to know about it, but now they do, and I was just there over the weekend, wow. and I walked up in the evening with my wife to fish this beautiful run that we've been fishing for generations. And there was a boat anchored there and they were fishing from the bank. And it was like, well, okay, what's our plan B? Uh, so it's a little bit of a shuffle, just like every good piece of steelhead water. You've got to get there at zero dark 30 or be strategic about how to hold that when the sun goes over the canyon side. That's going to be us in a couple of weeks. The Great Lakes, there's some good spots, but you've got to be up, if you said zero dark 30. Yeah, you've got to find, I mean, public water, non-guided, you've got to be smart. I mean, it's as much, it's as much about finding the fish and, and getting to the water and doing all that. It's a big part of it. I like to have the younger guys in my group get up early and then I'll go meet them. <laughs> yeah, but they're not going to rest the water for you. No. <laughs> yeah. What was it like when Tucker said, you know, I think I'm going to write a book about your life. Were you oh my gosh. Were someone to do that at any point or was that just completely out of the blue? Well, no. I mean, um, we all gather at our cabins, you know, and we have thanks, big Thanksgiving dinners. We go chucker hunting and steelheading and eat wild game and drink martinis at night. And there's always a recounting of stories. And I always had stories from the trips to Russia and the, the different characters I was meeting professionally. And I kept a journal and, uh, and records of everything, but Tucker said, you, but you've got to write this down. And I'm like, I'm a dad with three little kids and a very, very busy work career. And finally, I just said, she said, well, if you don't write it down, I'm going to write it down. And I said, you know, Tucker, you should write it down because I'm starting to forget things. I mean, I'm not that old. I mean, I'm 50, I'll be 59 this fall, but uh, still you, things aren't as vivid, even if you have a journal. Anyway, so she started writing it down and I didn't think the book was really going to go anywhere. I didn't know if it would go anywhere. But once you commit to something like that, you pretty much got to lay it all out there. And um, and so it was exciting and gratifying to see what came back. I mean, Tucker did a beautiful job writing that book. I mean, she, she took the extra time to make it beautiful and make the narrative move along uh, in a compelling way. So it was kind of scary, this whole process, and thinking, well, um, you know, this is, it's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. But I've been very 
flattered, of course, to be in the book and gratified that it's turning people on. I mean, the, the great thing about Tucker's book is it speaks to people that aren't just truly just the obsessed fishermen like, like we are. And that's the audience that we've got to get to move people to help protect these species. One of the things, I got, besides your dedication, is just sort of how fearless you are with these remote rivers when there's really no exfil if someone gets injured or something breaks down. You're in the middle of nowhere going down uncharted rivers or flying into helicopters, which apparently you just had a recent uh, scare on the Udu River. Oh, Tucker, gosh. Tucker mentioned to ask you about a recent uh, issue. Oh, gosh. Udu River? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, as a passenger in a helicopter or a plane, you, it, sometimes it's hard to judge what's happening. But, uh, yeah, we were trying to, uh, this is a few weeks ago. I, well, I'll say two things. Yeah, it was a little bit dicey. There was low ceiling clouds and then big patches of fog. And the helicopter had to stop and land on a gravel bar to wait for the weather to change. And it was, he was climbing through a mountain range by going really low on the valley bottoms and then just kind of hopping over the ridges and back down again. And sometimes we had to circle and go back. And it was a little bit dicey. Uh, but I have total confidence in the Russian pilots. And I have total confidence in the Mi-8 helicopters. I mean, I've been over 100 hours. I mean, a, a lot, a lot of hours. Maybe, I mean, I haven't added it all up. But well over 100 hours in these helicopters. And they look, you know, kind of beat up. And there's a, often stains on the outside. And you can tell this helicopter has been... Uh, around for a while, but the Russians know these helicopters. I mean, they can fix one anywhere, and they have an incredible safety record. They're overpowered, incredibly reliable, and the Russian pilots are second to none. So I've I have uh, a, I have more confidence in a Russian Mi-8 than I do a Beaver in Alaska, where you know a Beaver or a fixed-wing airplane, you can't. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to land, especially if you're in a canyon that's got narrow sides and there's clouds ahead, right? But a Mi-8, you can just go up or you can go down. So I will say that, yeah, I've had some dicey moments. I mean, Tucker writes about one of those. My Russian colleagues may say, ah, Gida, you know, don't worry, it's okay, you know. But I will say that I have total confidence in the Russian Mi-8 and the Russian pilots. That's impressive. So no more, no white knuckles when you get on them. <laughs> oh, there's always a few... I mean, generally not, though. This was just really bad, kind of sketchy weather, and the pilot did the right thing. He landed, and we waited, and we fished, and we made a big fish lunch, fish soup right there on the gravel bar, and talked, and we were there for a couple hours, and sure enough, the weather changed. Has aging or be, you became a parent, has that affected you, the risk-taking at all? Well, no, I, I guess the risk-taking in Russia is, yeah, more than flying around Alaska, but I don't feel um, like I'm gambling when I'm over there. I mean, this is, comes with the territory. You have to be comfortable being in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I don't feel like I'm taking more risks. Look, there's nothing more exciting than getting on new... <laughs> it's not just getting on first water in the morning. It's getting on first water ever. Getting to rivers that haven't been really figured out yet. I mean, that is cool. I mean, to be some of the first fishermen, on, especially these Taman rivers in the Havaris Cry, that, that some of them are in the book, and there's this new one that I'm exploring now that I, I can talk about in a minute called the Uda, which you mentioned. 
But yeah, when you fly to those long distances, uh, you're vulnerable to changes in weather. And uh, yeah, there's gas issues with how much petrol that, or how much kerosene that helicopters can take. Uh, and it's a little riskier. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but it is so exciting. It's just unbelievable. And you don't do these exploratories and actually always do that well from a fishing standpoint. Sometimes you don't catch anything or much of anything. But it's the process of exploration and learning how the system functions and how to fish it that's incredibly exciting. You've mentioned Taman. You're probably the first interviewee on the podcast in all these years that's had experience with them. What is it? What's their mouth and just the head look like up close? <laughs> what do they smell like? I'm just curious. <laughs> two fishermen. Yeah, I know. Oh, what do they smell like? The smell of taman in the morning gets me out of my bed. No, it's um. So, have you you fished muskies? I've encountered them. Okay, they're a lot like a big muskie, uh, a really big muskie. So, from the gills downstream. They are. Um, a, they look a lot like a muskie, and ecologically, they're similar to muskies. They are a trout. They look a lot like a bull trout, the shape of their head. If you could combine a bull trout and a muskie, you get a taimen. Taimen have you know how muskies have kind of a red tail. Mm -hmm. So the way to visualize taimen and fishing for taimen is just like fishing for a big old brown trout, right? That dominates the pool. You know he's there, but he doesn't come out very often, and you sometimes you have to fish at night or wait for it to get cloudy to have a shot at him. Or sometimes in the fall, he's just crazy and he's out chasing food and you can get a shot at him. Uh, so these taimen are the apex predators of the rivers of the Russian Far East. Not Kamchatka, but the Russian mainland. And they they feed just like a big old brown. They, they eat mostly you know anything they can. Uh, small grayling and lenok, which is a type of trout. And they get bigger and bigger until they get to be about 50 pounds in size, which is huge, of course. But only a few of the rivers are biologically productive enough to get a taimen to the 40 or 50 pound size. At that moment, these taimen start to feed on adult chum salmon. So they have to be big enough to take down a chum, which is a big fish, you know, 10, 15 pound chum. Then they really start growing and they get girth. And we're seeing, you know, 60 pounders. 70 pounders. Now we're getting in the size where they will take ducks. And you hear the Russians tell stories about hunting and they drop a duck and they send their bird dog out to get the duck and then the taimen attacks the bird dog. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now that's anecdotal. Who knows what really happened? But these are the stories. I've definitely heard multiple stories about them taking ducks. Anyway, so then they get bigger. And now we're seeing 60 pounders. 70-pounders, 80-pounders. My largest is an 82-pounder, 90-pounders. Our chief scientist got a 102-pounder. And then recently, some fly fishermen got taimen up to 115 pounds. So we're just learning how to find these fish and how to catch them. And they're not easy to catch. I mean, taimen fishing for big taimen is like elk hunting. You know, maybe you'll get a chance every couple of days. And I was over there this fall, and I blew three fish in a row. And that was it for my whole time over there. But that's okay. I'd rather have a chance at a really big fish. And in this case, I blew the set <laughs> on a really big fish. And then the second one was a really bad error of, of letting my fly. I was just holding my leader in my hand and let my streamer out the side of the boat. And I turned around for a minute, and a big fish grabbed oh. it and just broke 30 pounds like it was nothing. 
What is your gear set up for going over there for timing? Well, I, I, we've been trying different things because we're this is kind of terra incognita. Uh, so we're um, using now Echo King uh, uh, spay rods. They're, they're designed for King Salmon, 10 weights. So it's a 13 foot for a 10. And then uh, for the, we use a shooting line, a real slick shooter, 50 pound shooting line. And then the heads, I use different uh, shooting heads, just like I do for shook salmon fishing. Uh, you'll have a floating shooting head, 30 foot shooting heads, an intermediate, type two, a type three, but a type four and a type six. And most of our time is with a type four, which is a heavy one that drops pretty fast. And you're casting and stripping, uh, overhand casting these things. You can't really spay cast them very well because the fly is so big. And then we're, ca we're fishing 10-inch long uh, tube flies with heavy uh, nickel eyes on them, the heaviest size nickel eyes, and then these long wings, and then a single siwash uh, 4-0, sometimes a 3-0 hook. We used to use 3-0 siwashes, but then um, my colleague Matt got that 100-pounder and it bent, bent that 3-0 into a, literally almost a figure 8. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And when you mentioned these things are eating salmon, I imagine it, you know, as a snake guy, is it like they, they got to go and hide and digest a salmon over several days? Or can they put down several fish that size regularly? No, they put them, they put, <laughs> they put, they put multiples down. They put multiples down at a time. I saw a tame and chasing salmon uh, in September that blew my mind. I was at the top of a long, wide run. And on one side, the river was hit a, a kind of a hill, and it was probably dropped about 20 feet deep. And then the rest of the run was maybe five feet deep and just smooth, you know, small gravel bottom. And way down at the bottom of the run, I saw a huge disturbance and the waves. And you can, you know, as a fisherman, just like you can kind of calibrate what you see to the size of the fish, the waves and the movement was more marine mammal-like than piscator, than fish-like. Like I mean, it was a chasing big, seals. <laughs> well, like the seal kind of waves seals make. Okay. And a it was a, a, yeah, just like you could just see the displacement of water. It was, you know, you would know it when you saw it. I saw it from 300 yards away. And uh, it was like, wow, but that, you know, adds flavor to your morning on the river for sure. Wow. When you're packing for these, I'm assuming because you've been doing this since the, the 90s you got a pretty strict set of what you're going to bring and what you're not going to bring with you. And I imagine there's not a whole lot you can get when you land over there, be it socks to leaders. Oh, you can't get anything. Yeah. You, well, well, having said that now, if you get stuck in Seoul, Korea, there are Korean fly shops that you can grab stuff uh, if, you're, if you've got a layover in Seoul. And there's increasingly more stuff showing up in Russia, but it's pretty thin. The one thing when you travel over there is you've got to l create big layovers uh, between, you know, if I fly from Portland to LAX and then LAX to Seoul, Korea, you don't want to, you need a couple hours in LA for your baggage to get there. And I've gone all the way over there without my bags and had to fish with borrowed stuff on a great river. And it, it was d indescribably painful experience to go all that way onto a new river and not have my flies, you know, or my rod. So now I put lots of buffer between the legs of the trip so your bags will follow you. Is there gear you carry with you just in case? You know, that's a real, I used to do that. I probably should. 
sometimes I'll bring a Ziploc with my flies, just with you know maybe a dozen, because without the flies, you're 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 done. You right. you have to have the right flies. I've obviously. made the choice sometimes between flies in my bag or prescription pills. I'm like you know what, I'm packing the flies. <laughs> yeah. Well, they'll let you. I'm surprised they'll let you go through the, you know, those big sidewash hooks. They, don't, they haven't had any problem with that yet. And while you're in Russia, do you have any favorite Russian cuisine? The borscht is just world class. It's a beet soup that's ubiquitous over in Russia. They always serve it. Yeah, the borscht. I just love that borscht. That's one of my in laws' five things they cook. Oh, that's great. They only cook. Mm -hmm. I don't like beets, though. The only beets I like are Zahav from. Philadelphia, they bake them in salt. So you take your beets and you pack them in kosher salt and then roast them for an hour. And then you mash them up with tahina. And that is remarkable. The Russians are great at pickling things. And so the Russian pickles and, and pickled tomatoes and, you know, is just are also very, very good. My in-laws will clean up when they go to World Market or Marshall's and they see all the pickled jars of stuff. That's their whole pantry, is pickled things. Pickled yeah. mushrooms, pickled onions, pickled, yeah, the tomatoes. Yeah, that was delicious. You want to go to keep talking about Kamchatka or can I ask more you know, questions about Wild Salmon Center? Oh, well, I was talking about Russian Far East. Yeah, um, where, would, where do you want to go from here? Oh, I'll go anywhere. I mean, I can certainly talk about those. Um, yeah, go ahead. In the book, Tucker mentions the third dimension of a river. And I didn't really understand that. Is that something you can explain? Well, the person who really described the third dimension is Jack Stanford, who is a former uh, professor and head of the Flathead Lake Biological Station at University of Montana. And Jack is kind of like the Indiana Jones type character, uh, very charismatic, passionate, a brilliant scientist. He discovered that the river ecosystem functions in multiple ways. And the only way to visualize it is as a river flows across its floodplain, it often lies on a bed of gravel or alluvium. And as the river moves, it moves laterally, knocking down trees and so on and creating braids. And that habitat is what drives uh, salmon, you know, trout and salmon for, uh, health is all those little microhabitats created by that river as it moves laterally across the floodplain, like the tail of a whip almost, going downstream. But Jack discovered another dimension that underneath the gravel and the rocks, the river continues to flow underground and to the side of the visible channel. So what you see, the river channel, often that extends far, uh, some uh, dimensions inland. And in those rocks, under the ground, in the darkness, are other organisms, including the larval form of different stoneflies. And this was a brand new uh, dimension that was discovered by Jack and his team in Montana. Look, I think they started their work on the Flathead River. And so what he taught us was when you see a river, there are more dimensions than you can see. And Jack further articulated the role of habitat and how that contributes to the productivity of the river. And then in Kamchatka, he, in partnering with Moscow State University scientists, looked at the role of the salmon nutrients in those watersheds and how they were feeding the different levels, trophic levels of the ecosystem. So it's fascinating. Fishing with Jack, I've learned more than from any other event in my life about how the river ecosystem works. Interesting. 
Yeah, I, I just didn't really get it in the book. And I reread that section twice. And as I'm reading this, I was thinking, I've got to get Guido on the podcast. So I was writing <laughs> que potential questions as I was going down. And that was one of them. It's the third dimension. Now, I'm sure Montana, that's the first time I ever really encountered a stone fly. I didn't know what it was. It scared the crap out of me. I flipped <laughs> over a rock, and there was just this giant larva underneath it. And I must have been, I don't know, nine years old. Well, they're dinosaurs. I mean, a Placoptera and those stoneflies go back hundreds of millions of years. They're one of the most ancient, you know, living forms of uh, of life. I mean, I think they're older than the, well, they're, they're ancient and they're, same with dragonflies, of course. I, I think Ephemeroptera are also a very old lineage of invertebrates. And we don't have the stone, like where I grew up, there weren't stoneflies in the warm water. We had caddis. So that, yeah, that first time I saw it, I thought, it was an alien that had landed here. It was under a rock. And it was a rafting group. So none of, they were anglers. None of them knew what it was. Um, well, when we fished the Deschutes during the salmon fly hatch, those things are flying through the air and landing in your hair, on your body. And they're just like, just big fluttering and piles of them attached to the vegetation. And none of us, it really bothers us. You're just a big stone fly. And they're big. Taranarsis, you know, they're three, three inches long. And, you know, the land in your hair, you just pull it off and throw it onto the ground. They don't have any mouths. They don't bite. And they're not kind of that creepy looking. And you just get used to them. It's like having the cicadas here without the noise. Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes we have the salmon fly hatch and the cicadas at the same time. It's just a insect menagerie. And everything's eating the salmon flies. It's really cool. Just like the way the salmon runs come up and all the animals gather to feed on the salmon runs. On the Deschutes, the alligator lizards feed on the stoneflies and the fence lizards and the birds are grabbing them out of the air and all the trout are lined up up and down the bank waiting you, for them. Are you going to fish dries or do you ever fish stonefly nymphs for them? Because I tie a bunch of stonefly nymphs for the Great Lakes because they're loaded with them. Yeah. Well, it's West. interesting. Everybody during the peak of the salmon fly hatch, there's two um, elements of it. There's the golden stone which is uh, Acronuria, and it's a, um, uh, it's a predatory stonefly. The, the golden stones look like the, the larvae are everywhere, and they look like kind of like jaguars. You know, they're, they're yellow, and they've got black spots, and they're terrifying predators of the bottom of the river. And they come off first, and they're a little bit smaller, and then the Ternarsis is a vegetarian, and it's bigger, and it's the classic salmon fly. And they come up, you know, the, the two kind of come out together, but the golden stones always lead. Everybody fishes the dries, and especially the big ones. And those trout, they get tired of getting hooked, you know. So often I'll fish nymphs. But the funny thing is, and I love fishing nymphs. Um, I hate to say it, but I fish nymphs a lot more than dries these days. I actually will fish smaller nymphs and do really well. Because um, even though the fish are targeting the salmon flies, sometimes you can come right in behind somebody fishing a dry with this pheasant tail and do really well. So it's hard to explain, but I do think they get a little bit tired and cautious around those big dries after the they've, they've been fished over a lot. Would you ever do a dry dropper for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Mm -hmm. I just had a podcast about dry droppers and got a nice email that somebody had convinced their brother to finally do a dry dropper and he started catching trout right away. So I thought that was great. Yeah, super effective. Yeah. So back, I want to talk about the strongholds a bit. Mm -hmm. what categories would eliminate a river from being a stronghold? So like would it, dams, is that just an automatic 
we're going to go to the next river? No. I mean, there's two levels of strongholds. I mean, there's global strongholds, which are the simply the, the very most productive rivers in the world for a species, like Bristol Bay, global stronghold for sockeye, salmon. There's nothing like it. It's 50% of the world's sockeye production. The uh, Kopi River in the Russian Far East is the global stronghold for sea run taimen and Asian uh, masu or cherry salmon and so on. Um, and then Skeena is a stronghold for Chinook, uh, for, uh, well, for Chinook, but also for steelhead. But the strategies, the purpose of the strategy is to identify and protect the most important river, salmon rivers, and centers of salmon diversity and health in each region of the Pacific Rim. And so the, region, the Pacific Rim is broken into ecological regions, like the Oregon coast or Vancouver Island or central BC and so on. So we've created a methodology so that you can target the most important places within each region. This way we capture the locally adapted species and types of river. For example, Oregon temperate rainforest and the Oregon coast. Well, the fall Chinook and winter steelhead are different there than anywhere else. And the future for having healthy wild salmon on the Oregon coast, for example, or anywhere else, is making sure we protect those locally adapted populations because they're different. And so we're saying all rivers are important, but in addition to restoring the ones that are endangered, let's find the ones that are relatively intact in each region and hold these up and say, let's make darn sure we protect those and prevent the next generation of threats. Some of those might be damned, right? There's no hard rule saying the only hard rule is if the population is dominated by hatchery fish or if the population's very, very small, we wouldn't give it a stronghold uh, name or category. But if it's wild fish and it's relatively important within that region, it's a stronghold. It means that it's been functioning as a stronghold. Otherwise, the fish wouldn't be there. And it also means that it's a good investment for long-term conservation. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And what about the landowners along the river? Are they becoming, are they seeing that the salmon are in danger and, and that they need help and are willing to contribute their land to not, I don't know, log it or use heavy farmers or uh, pollutants when they're, they're doing their crops? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. So, Often the people that live on the river are the most passionate defenders because that's where they fish and they raise their families and children and they know the value and the beauty of it. Um, Sometimes those landowners are doing things to damage the river, Uh, withdrawing water sometimes, too much water for municipal water use or agriculture. That can kill a river pretty darn fast. Uh, Sometimes they're industrial uh, timber uh, companies that are logging aggressively uh, next to the river. That's a great way to destroy a river. It's just let's make it muddy as hell every time it rains and remove the shade and the habitat. Uh, so it's a mixed bag. But the main thing is if you can find people that are landowners on the river that share the vision for keeping the runs healthy, that's the single most important thing you can do. 
And there's a lot of things landowners can do to reduce the impacts that they're having on the Salmon River health just by fencing the riparian area along the river and working on voluntary efforts to try to put water back in the river at key times. That stuff's really important. Uh, my wife works for a group called Sustainable Northwest here in Oregon, and she's working with ranchers in, on the John Day River in Oregon and looking for that sweet spot to say, okay, you need your water for the crops, but is there a way that we can figure out a way to keep the water in the river during the, the time when the fish need it? And it's a complicated but critical conversation to have. Does that happen? Do you have people go door to door? How do you get a yes. hold of the landowners? You know what happened? Very interesting. In Oregon, I was part of the group that um, listed uh, salmon as endangered species. Oh, this was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And the impact that the Endangered Species Act listings, meaning the Endangered Species Act and federal law, was, was saying salmon, some species, and steelhead are a federally listed endangered species. Now, remember what happened with the spotted owl and forestry. Early this 90s? Went off in the 90s. This went off the ESA listing like a bomb in Oregon. And because salmon are everywhere. I mean, it's been said that the Pacific Northwest is every place the salmon can get to. So what we had a governor, a visionary governor, uh, named John Kitzhopper. And Governor Kitzhopper had a brilliant idea. He said, for every watershed, I'm going to get everyone together, the loggers, the agriculture guys, the fishermen, the guides, the environmentalists, and I want you all to sit down and work together on a plan to protect and restore your watershed. And I want you to create what's called a watershed council, a local group that meets regularly. And this was brilliant. And Kitzhopper was famous. He was our best he was a terrific governor for fish conservation because he was a fisherman and he got it. And he wasn't like a hardcore Republican or hardcore Democrat or hardcore Republican. He was just a pragmatist and wanted to get stuff done. And these watershed councils brought people together and it's still working. And they've taken the, there's still challenges, there's still litigation, there's still battles going on. But now there's a way for people to work together at the local level. And it's making a big difference. Do you ever work with Ron Wyden? So you bet. Senator Wyden's been terrific on salmon conservation issues. Next time you see him, tell him I said hi. We used to have Thanksgiving dinners with his family growing up. Oh, no small, kidding. Small world world here in D.C. Oh, terrific. Yeah. So once these fish are out to sea now, uh, is, is there problems now with the ocean getting warmer, moving further north along the coast? You're not getting the, <clears throat> you're not getting the cold upwellings from the Antarctic that are moving up and there's new species that are starting to, to move in. Is that affecting their food? And are they trying to avoid the warm water blobs? Yeah, so that's a big issue. And uh, I wish there was a way to, to remedy it in the near term, but there's not. So we're seeing two things happening. One is um, one, out of four, one out of four carbon molecules that, that drops in the atmosphere, you know, so all the pollution we're, we're putting into the atmosphere one out of four of those molecules ends up in the ocean. And all that pollution ending up in the ocean from pollution from, you know, from the United States, but I mean, China is a huge contributor for the Pacific Ocean. Just that plume of, of pollution that comes from China goes right out over the Pacific on its way east. It, ends, it enters the ocean and becomes part of the ocean currents. And those ocean currents then push up against the Pacific Northwest. Oregon, Washington, California, where there's a continental shelf and those deep currents well up and they create the upwelling that creates the food 
chain that, that feeds the salmon. That's why we've always had great salmon runs. It's that mixture of cold, nutrient-rich water pushing up towards the sun and then photosynthesis happening and lots of plant life and then lots of little zooplankton eating that. And then, of course, there are the salmon. But now that water acidity is changing from all that pollution and it's shifting. And now the water is becoming so acid that oyster growers, the shellfish industry, oysters can't grow their shells because calcium carbonate, uh, the shells can't accumulate with the higher acidity levels in the water. And the shellfish industry is losing $100 million a year now because of ocean acidification. This is a big deal. Now, the salmon eat little zooplanktons that also make shells, things called pteropods and other organisms. They're having a hard time making their shells. And so the species composition in the ocean is changing because the acidity is changing. The only good news is we know it's a 50-year cycle from where that current starts in the Sea of Ahotsk and off Japan and the carbon gets in there. So technically, if we were able to turn down the pollution level in 50 years, it would start to clean up in the ocean. So I found that in this world of terrible news, relatively uh, uplifting in a strange way. The second thing that's happening in the ocean is it's getting warmer. And so it's getting warmer long enough that big patches of ocean are becoming much warmer than normal, like, you know, in the high 60 degrees, Maybe you're at low, I'm not sure if that gets to the low 70s, but these big patches of warm, clear, nutrient-poor water are lie off the coast. Not right on the coast, but just offshore, and they're huge. And the ones a scientist gave them the name is called the blob, and it's an area like the size of Alaska that's off the coast of British Columbia, Oregon, and Washington, where there's like tropical fish species <laughs> that don't belong there. And these areas normally get broken up by the winter storms. But now we're seeing them stick around for more than a season, but for, through the winter. Now, there, a blob set up this fall, and I believe that it's breaking up right now. But this is what the future looks like. And if you're a baby salmon going into the ocean and you swim into this warm water, which is about 100 feet deep, uh, not good. You're, you're going to be eaten by one of those, by a mackerel or some other species that's adapted to that warmer water. So this is what the future is holding. Uh, you know, stagnant, warm, nutrient-poor water. We've had die-offs next to the continental shelf, like right on the shelf where the water stops circulating and you get uh, die-offs because the water is not circulating enough. And then you've got this acidification. Now, that all sounds quite dismal, but um, the oceans, have, you know, is a moving, adapting ecosystem. And so this does not look good. But I don't think it's going to mean the instant death for our salmon fisheries, but it's going to change. And that's a challenge, and it's an opportunity, <laughs> more, more of a challenge than an opportunity. You also mentioned the sea lions. Are they still trying to cull them? And I guess there's also a lot of birds out there that are eating the, the salmon fry as they're headed out. Well, What's there's two. Uh, to, yeah, uh, explain. Yeah, two, two things. Let me, so... Another problem with the Pacific Ocean is uh, these massive industrial fish hatcheries. So this is where they catch the baby salmon. They, they breed them in hatcheries and then release the babies into the ocean. There are smaller hatcheries, uh, which are very bad for the wild fish up and down the coast. And then there are industrial hatcheries where they just millions and millions and millions of salmon are released. And those are mostly pink salmon and chum salmon. In, in southeast Alaska, the Alaskans have massive production centers for pink salmon. And they're releasing so many pinks into the ocean that it's been tied that they appear to be overgrazing the zooplankton uh, biomass or those vast mats of zooplankton that float in the ocean. 
near the surface, and that's what feeds all the salmon. And the Alaska pinks have been tied to the declines in Canadian sockeye and other salmon runs. And so it looks like now we're just releasing, I mean, releasing 5 billion baby salmon a year going to the North Pacific. There's more hatchery chum salmon in the North Pacific now than there are wild chum. Those are coming from uh, Japan's big hatcheries. And this is a big challenge. And now we're seeing uh, die-offs in seabirds and other issues that are related to too many hungry little pink and chum salmon competing with sockeye or coho or even chinook or seabirds. So you can see when the ocean changes and there's a bad couple of years, then you compound that by flooding it with these hatchery fish and you have an ecological disaster. Now, I don't mean to hold forth too long, but I can then jump into the sea lion issue. Sure. Okay, so I go from that to then how this is affecting the salmon forests if these salmon are not then coming back. Yeah, so um, it's not like the salmon runs have stopped coming back. It just looks like the runs are beginning beginning to be depressed. Is it because of the hatchery competition in the ocean or other factors? Sometimes it's hard to tell. I can tell you that if you're an indigenous group in Russia, like the Nanai or the Udige or the Koryak that depend upon salmon. Like it's not just something else that they do, it is what they do, they eat salmon. And your runs don't come back or they come back very poor because of uh, this. It's a life and death and cultural survival issue, a food security issue. Same thing in Alaska or British Columbia. Another phenomenon that's hitting, that we're dealing with here is uh, seals and sea lions are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is important and necessary but has worked so well that sea lion populations have been increasing in, like in exponentially by leaps and leaps and bounds. And now we have sea lions way up in the rivers feeding on the salmon and steel where they never used to be historically. And you have huge numbers of them gathered below Bonneville Dam. In fact, parked right at the fish ladder for the fish that are swimming up the Columbia that then have to go over Bonneville Dam and to get up to the fish ladders. And so this is the first dam on the Columbia. And the sea lions one year ate 40% of the spring Chinook run. I mean, the sea lions, you look at the pictures of them, when they arrive in the Columbia, they look like kind of a normally shaped sea lion. And by the end of the salmon run, they just look obese. They, they, they climb up on a dock, and the dock almost tips over. I mean, they look like a, like a, like a whale. Do you ever foul hook and, them? Do people foul hook <laughs> them? <laughs> no. But my point is, is that the sea lions are not endangered at all. They're doing well, but we simply have to have more latitude to take the sea lions out of the mouth of the fish ladders. Now, in, in, the, in Puget Sound, there are so many harbor seals now that they're eating 70 to 80 percent of the baby steelhead once the steelhead go from the rivers into Puget Sound in Washington state. So we have an unnatural situation that is very hard to deal with. And uh, so I'll say that it's important time for the fish managers and the tribal fish managers to have the latitude to remove seals and sea lions from choke points where they're eating too many of the baby salmon and steelhead. Just have Boy Scouts go out there and beat drums all night, scare them away? No, they have other ways to to remove them. Okay. Uh, My last serious question is, are there non-believers in strongholds? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, you know, um, there might be that I don't know about, but there's nuance here. So the stronghold strategy 
so when we developed the strategy, all the emphasis was on the most endangered salmon because of the Endangered Species Act. But we realized that wasn't going to work by itself because you can't wait till they're really endangered before you start to try to protect them, right? But by the time the dams are built, it's, it's hard to unwind things sometimes. So there was nothing being done to prevent them from being endangered in the first place. So then we developed the stronghold strategy as a complement to the endangered species restoration efforts, right? You need to have preventative care and urgent care. Uh, but at the same time, some people felt, felt like what you were saying is that's triage. And triage means you don't deal with the endangered ones. You just focus on your best shots, like the ones that are relatively healthy, but forgive up on the endangered ones. And we've been really careful to say, no, this is not triage. We're, the, the stronghold strategy is not a solution to the salmon declines. It's just a critical part of the overall strategy to protect them. There's a big difference there. So I have not heard detractors from the stronghold strategy, but I have heard people concerned by saying, well, if you're just focused on those strongholds, does that mean that it's not important to restore salmon to the Columbia River? or the Willamette, or California. And I say, no, it is important to do that, but we also need to have a stronghold strategy, if, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. All right. I've got some uh, random questions for you now. Okay. Now you're limited with time. Is there a fish species you will not target? You mean of any fish? Yeah. Like, here we have gizzard shad. I do not want myself or my clients ever to hook a gizzard shad. They're disgusting. <laughs> I'd have to say the salacanth, which is an ancient fish that lives off the coast of Madagascar and the Comoros Islands. It's hundreds of millions of years old. It's probably too rare and endangered to fly fish for, but plus how you deliver a fly at the five or 600 foot level could be a logistical challenge. But I'm kind of half kidding about that. You're saying a fish so beautiful or so endangered that we should leave it alone. Or a fish so ugly that we wouldn't yeah, want to hook something's it. Something's just as disgusting that you wouldn't want to encounter oh gosh i don't have a crystal clean answer on that one like, is there anything I mean, you catch are, like bycatch and you're just like ugh. well i mean I sculpin you know uh when you're salmon fishing and you're fishing for a big beautiful bright chinook and all of a sudden you feel that first pull and it's a sculpin that's all i a, got it's all i got and you, you get those sharp little uh spikes on their gills to navigate but also you know that you're fishing too deep so <laughs> you're like, I've been fishing under the fish. That's why I got a sculpin. Got to go lighter. Do you have a favorite piece of fly fishing equipment? That's, that would just ruin your day if, if the kids sold it on eBay to, to buy new shoes or something? Yes. My Bogdan. My Bogdan's. Bogdan reel? Yeah. I mean, the Bogdan is a handmade reel for Atlantic salmon that was made by a guy named Stan Bogdan. And is the I think it's like the Stradivarius of violins, but for fishing reels, and they're beautiful. And uh, and so my Bogdans, I just love fishing Bogdans. Now any reel that has a decent drag is going to work fine. So it's not like you have to fish a Bogdan to catch fish, but they're just so beautiful and they're built so well. And I just love looking at them when I'm fishing them. That that's my for me the rods they change every year. There's new and better technologies. I break rods. I don't lose a lot of sleep over a broken rod because I know that I'm going to get another rod, a newer rod, a newer rod. But a reel, the technology doesn't change that much. So I love my old Bogdans. And I used to fish Hardee's 
and I love the old Hardys too, antique Hardys. You know, the Hardy Perfects with the agate real guides. Yeah, uh, those are. I was uh, looking line. at some of those online yesterday. Oh just yeah, looking, they're just not so, shopping, just looking. Yeah, if anybody hooks a fish with a Hardy, pretty much everyone within a quarter mile is going to know it. <laughs> those those drags are so loud. What is one of the strangest things you found while fishing? Well, I mean, the strangest fish I fished for was the sea run taimen. Um, and it, it's not the taimen, the, the, the ones, the Siberian taimen. It's an even more ancient fish that looks like a cross between a brown trout and a sea run cutthroat trout. And they live in a few rivers of the Sea of Japan in the Russian Far East. And the river that the sea run taimen, it's also called Sokolin taimen, it's a big trout. It gets to be 100 pounds. It also feeds on adult salmon. And it's very elusive. And only a few fly fishermen have caught them. And they're, they're rare, and they're hard to catch. And they live in watersheds, uh, this area that's kind of across from Japan. So you'd have to go visualize going due west of maybe Hokkaido, Japan, onto the Russian mainland. And that's where these rivers are that have the sea run taimen. And they live in watersheds that the forests are very rich in species. They're almost like, the, like Vermont. And in the watersheds, there are you know, grizzly bears and wolves and caribou, you know, forest caribou and elk and wild boar and Siberian tigers all living together in the same forest. And in the river are these beautiful salmon called cherry salmon or masu, which are like a little mini Chinook, but live only on the Asian side. And lurking deep in the pools are the sea run or Sokolin taimen. And you know, DNA analysis has shown that they're more closely related to Atlantic salmon than Pacific salmon. So truly, they're one of the most ancient of all the Salmonids. I don't think I've ever heard of those before. Uh, not, not many people have. They're, yeah. they're rare. They're really the holy grail. I Everyone, mean, that's the next. Mm-hmm. We should all be Googling that next. Uh, if, you only had, <laughs> if you had one bird species to tie with for the rest of your life, what would you choose? One type of bird. Well, if it was one type of animal, it'd be bucktail because, um, I mean, from clouds ears to tubes, bucktail in dyed different colors is irreplaceable. Um, if it was a bird species, it would have to be saddle. I mean, you can do so much with saddle hackle. You know, you can t- tie it, you can wrap bodies with it, you can palmer with it. Uh, so, I mean, it would have to be, you know, good old ubiquitous. I don't know if it'd be grizzly hackle or not, but you can do everything with saddles. What is your home fly shop? You walk in, they know your name. Oh, the Portland Portland Fly Shop right here in Portland. Jason Osborne, he's terrific. I will have to step they, in there sometime. Absolutely. Please give him some business. He's got everything you could ever want right here in Portland, Oregon in Northwest. With all these crazy salmonids you've caught, are there other species that you'd like to catch somewhere in the world? Yeah, you know, I would love to catch the golden masir in uh, India, in northern India. The, the rivers where the Masir, I first heard about the golden Masir, it's a giant predatory carp. Uh, you think carp, uh, you know, but this is a carp that, boy, it doesn't look like a normal carp to me. It looks like badass predatory fish. It looks like they get to be 60 or 70 pounds. And I first heard about it reading the short stories of a guy named Jim Corbett. And Jim Corbett lived in northern India in the at foothills of the Himalayas, and he was famous for hunting man-eating tigers. So if you ever want to read something that will blow your mind, the reading this understated British expat's narrative about tiptoeing through the forest 
following man-eating tigers and playing cat and mouse with tigers that have killed and eaten, you know, 400 or 500 humans. Okay, this was in the early 1900s. But he also writes about going onto a stream and going fishing for golden moss here and catching like a 40 and a 50-pound moss here in one day. Uh, wow, in a small jungle stream. Totally cool. So that's on my bucket list. Awesome. Is there an animal you won't pick up with your hands? Well, I mean, I'm not going to, I will not pick up with my hands. Um, well, I'm not going to touch a fer de lance, which is a Bothrops aspirate, which is a big uh, poisonous snake in the tropics. I'll pin its head down with something and, and then that way, but I'm not going to go grab it with my hands. I wouldn't grab any poisonous snake. I'll grab a rattlesnake by the tail sometimes if you can are careful about it. But, uh, and you know, um, yeah, that's just too risky. I mean, you just do something stupid like that, and that's the last dumb thing you do, you know, because the venom is not good when it gets in your bloodstream or in your tissue. Um, coral snakes are really tricky to catch, and they've got to do weird things with their tails and with their heads. Uh, so I'm not sure if I'm giving a very good answer. Um, spiders, I won't pick up a... And I used to pick up a desert hairy scorpions with my hands, but you just put your hand down, and they can kind of walk onto your hand, and you know they're not going to start stinging you with their tail. I think a jellyfish, you know, one of those poisonous jellyfish, really bad idea to try to pick one up with your hands. So that those are sampling of things I wouldn't pick up directly with my hands. My wife gets mad when I pick things up. I always grab bees. I won't pick up hornets. Hornets and wasps I don't mess with, but pretty much a lot of things I freak her out with. <laughs> and I'm sure your wife also has probably screamed a couple times with things you've brought home. She used to scream. Now she just shrugs. She's like, oh, <laughs> him again. I'm always the one in the neighborhood that's, that gets called when there's something in someone's house. Like the neighbors had a chipmunk. They're like, you need to come over and get rid of the chipmunk. I had to go get an owl off someone's porch once. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's great. I mean, everybody should grow up having chances to do crazy things like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, what are y'all handing out for Halloween this week? Oh, my gosh. You know, Lee and I have a child in boarding school up in uh, uh, Victoria, British Columbia, so we're going to miss Halloween. But normally we do the, the usual, you know, a bowl, a bowl full of candy, and we live in a really great neighborhood, and everybody knows everybody, so we get lots of kids. But this will be the first time in many years we haven't uh, had done candy for Halloween. What's your favorite part of the Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, gosh. You know, we make a big deal about Thanksgiving. And I love wild rice prepared with um, slivered almonds and mushrooms and cranberries. There just cannot be wild rice. And I have to say, I love uh, a martini before dinner with a uh, caperberry martini, dry, with good vermouth, you know, preferably good gin too, maybe even Plymouth with a little bit of very good quality vermouth and a caperberry and maybe some cambazola cheese. But I just love that. Uh, that rice dish and I love a turkey that's not too dry yeah, the camisole you've got good cheese in Oregon I used to be a cheesemonger and my oh. favorite blue cheeses were from Oregon like Crater Lake Blue yeah Rogue River Creamery all, all those stuff was amazing oh I'll have to get some I, that's terrific yeah I, I'll have to I'm getting very stuck on camisolas I'm going to have to diversify my, my cheese uh, inventory Michael Chiarello used to have a TV show before he got in trouble. And he was a big fan of the Cambazola. 
Oh, good. Yeah, he, he yeah. went down with a lot of other chefs. Um, do you have a, a personalized license plate on your car? No, no, I don't. I don't. There was a guy <laughs> here about 20 years ago who'd come into our fly shop, and he had Taman as his license plate. You should yeah. give that one to you. Well, on the Taman front, I hope that we obsessed fishermen from North America if we can colonize some of those Russian Taman rivers and pump some money into their local economy and and say, hey, this is a this fish is gold from a tourism standpoint. Don't kill it, release it. The Russians have, I mean, catch and release is a new concept over there, uh, a concept that very few of them understand. And it wasn't even legal to catch and release uh, fish in, until recently in Russia. But getting them to the way we started treating muskie in in Wisconsin, for example, that people realized, you know, this needs to be released. That's what needs to happen in Russia. And so if we can get tame and tourism programs going and foster that catch-and-release ethic, and there's a new group in Moscow called the Russian Salmon Fund, uh, Russian Salmon Partnership that's going to promote that too. I think that's going to be important development uh, for you know tame and all fish conservation. If you had a time machine, you could go back in time to see a, a band play at their peak, what would you choose? Oh, man, if I could go back and see Four-Way Street, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, I would give anything to be at that concert. Or maybe Neil Young live at Massey Hall. I would have loved to have seen that. Well, I'm being pulled into it. I'm at the end of my, my time cool. window. Well, that was yeah. pretty much all my questions. Thank you so much for, for the chance to be on your show. And I love talking about fishing. I love talking about fishing with someone who's a hardcore fisherman. And I could talk for three more hours I wish we could. <laughs> about that. Next time you come through D.C., look me up. We'll go out and do some urban fishing. That sounds great. I All definitely right. will. All right, Guido. Thank you again so much for the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.